Jim Reese has already published three books of poetry. Many of the poems from those books, the people, places, and situations, have a kind of a second life in his latest work, a memoir in essays titled Bone Chalk. Those places are mainly in Nebraska. While this is Reese's first published book of nonfiction, Bone Chalk will remain indelible for readers from any place. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. The topics in Jim Reese's Bone Chalk are wide-ranging. We learn a lot about rural America and the Midwestern sensibility that's more complex and multidimensional than most people seem to perceive or understand. He also writes about the incarcerated men and women he's worked with as part of the Education Department's federal prison program. His mother-in-law is the subject of another short series of vignettes, as was the younger Jim Reese as Willie the Wildcat, a mascot for his college football team. We spoke to Jim Reese from his home in South Dakota. So I'll go ahead and read this section from the mother-in-law archives. It's called Just Married. My mother-in-law, the keeper of all things whole and necessary, puts leftover food in little plastic baby food containers and yogurt cups she has saved, will leave half a chicken wing for someone else to eat, wraps up and refrigerates one slice of bacon, puts lemon juice on half an apple so it won't turn brown, has a drawer full of mustard, barbecue, and soy sauce packages from takeout restaurants from out of town. She cuts coupons, cuts up and collects newspaper articles if she knows someone in the article or knows someone who knows the person in the article. Gives me play-by-plays of garage sales and auctions. Saves fresh scraps for stray cats, bones for the dogs. Saves for Jesus and saves for you. Picks green tomatoes before the first winter freeze. Wraps them in tissue paper, serves them for Thanksgiving dinner. Balances soap dispensers upside down like others do with ketchup bottles and eventually combines them in one. Has a room full of old jeans in case her husband's overalls need patching or her son-in-law's crotch blows out. Makes pie crust from lard, the only way to make pie crust. Has full canning jars from the 80s. Has unidentifiable things in her deep freeze. Once, I saw her pull a tarp for a pickup bed out from underneath her dresser. I've been holding on to this, I don't know how long. If you need something, a blowtorch. Nunchucks, twist ties, marbles, propane, a chandelier, suspenders, a curtain rod, spare tire, a putter, basin wrench, bell bottoms, a bowling ball, anything. She's your woman. I feel like you really cut your teeth in professional publishing and the poetry genre. How was the transition to creative nonfiction for you? You know, I really, really love it. Um, I had the you know, I was very lucky to, I was working on my PhD at the University of Nebraska when Ted Kuzer received the Pulitzer Prize and became the United States Poet Laureate. So we watched him a lot as students, what he did. And, and, you know, he really just put his head down and got to work. He was, I think he did like 270 readings in two years while he was United States Poet Laureate. But when he wasn't on the road, he would come back and come to our readings and he would visit some of our classes that we were teaching as graduate assistants if um, we could find time wow. in his schedule. So I would always try to find time. One time he was at 
our graduate school reading and it was called the no name reading series and it happened to be my turn and I read a poem and and I ended the reading and he walked up to me and he said you know Jim that last poem you read is an entire Willa Cather novel and he smiled and he kind of walked away and I thought about that for a long time you know when you're in graduate school you pick a genre because you want to publish and you need to publish to get a job. And so you kind of stick in that genre and you, and you do the best you can. Um, I, I liked poetry a lot, but I really liked narrative voices and, and the voices of all of these writers I was studying. So for me that, you know, so I was writing essays on the side and I just continue, kept continuing to do that. And, you know, and I love it because, you talk to, I mean, I think as writers, what my main goal is, hey, I want to share my stories with as many people as I can. And I want to make my mark. You know, I want, I hope my voice makes a difference, especially when I'm writing about crime and punishment. Um, but essays about my mother-in-law or essays about my family. I hope all of those things ring true with people. And if you say poetry, people kind of put their head down and they don't know how to respond. Um but if you say nonfiction, you know, everybody's like, oh, cool, I'll have to check that out, you know, and, and I liked mixing all these different essays together. You know, I've got anything from me being a college mascot for all the wrong reasons <laughs> to an essay of, you know, the 14 years I've been working in prisons and what criminals teach me. And you also write a lot about place. And we learn a lot about the Midwest in these wide-ranging essays and you've already alluded to just how wide-ranging they are um, and part of the way that we learn about the Midwest is through these sort of cryptic vignettes that are interspersed in your book about Midwest bumper stickers and it's just amazing to me what a like a mosaic of quips those are that tell a more complete story about a place and its people um, how did you make the decision to include, it's sort of an unusual kind of an essay for this book. Yeah, that's something I was, I had been, I'd put it in a, my first book and then I just kept, every time I'd see a bumper sticker, I would write it down and I just kept doing that. And then when that, when I first started putting this book together, it had more of a um, scrapbook kind of feel. I had more of these little like I had newspaper clippings, different things from that were unique to the Midwest. Um, but when it came time to put the book together, the editors and the publisher said, hey, we see what you're doing here. We think the essays are strong enough to stand on their own where you don't have to do this, but we do want to keep the bumper stickers. So I interspersed those throughout the book because it's just, it does paint a picture. It just amazes me still every day what people put on their cars. I was Right now, part of my, the next book I'm working on um, is an extension of, you know, my work in prisons, but I really wanted to see crime on the front end. So I've done over like 250 hours of ride-alongs with the police in my city and um, seeing crime on the front end, talking about when I see, you know, work with um, criminals with, you know, in prisons and then hopefully never see them again. So I thought that would help paint a complete picture I was riding along the other night and um, and we saw a car and I said, hey, shine your lights on the back of the window. And the police said, no, we can't do that. I said, come on. 
They said, no, we can't do that. And I said, okay. But they pulled up real close. And on the back of this car, and I'm not kidding you, it said, mom and ain't easy. And then on the right side of the back window, it said, kids up in this bitch. <laughs> and I thought, wow. Okay. I mean, nothing amazes me. And I don't think much amazes many people in this country after the last few years we've had. Well, it's so interesting. You know, we always say about creative nonfiction, we can't make this stuff up. But I feel like those bumper stickers are really um, illustrating that point, too. You know, (laughs) since you wouldn't believe what's on a bumper sticker. You can't make it up. Um, yeah, and people will say, are those really true? I'm like, yes, they're really true. <laughs> they have to be. They must be. It's just, it, it, it's amazing to me. But it was, it, it was this very interesting kind of shorthand way of writing about place. Not, you know, sort of, we're not writing along, but we're re- we get to read the bumper stickers anyway, right? So the, I, I really like that. Um, that part of including them in a book like this where there are such serious essays about some very serious things, but you are still writing about a place. And I just felt like, wow, this, this was a really compressed way to put us there, at least in, in, some, in some form, right, in some way. Um, so I appreciated that. And they sort of work hand-in-hand hand with the Mother-in-Law Archives. I think it's an essay that I found so endearing and somehow so resonant. Um, I'm from the Texas-Mexico border. Um, My husband's family's from Tennessee. Um, My, you know, my sister's in-laws are in California. So, but there was just something about mothers-in-law that that really captured. Um, So it it was so specific to her, these amazing idiosyncratic details and yet I found it so completely resonant made me understand how alike our our mothers are no matter where they're from well thanks that was my hope I remember one time when I first started writing about her when I was in graduate school thinking of bigger projects I sent her an email and I said can you tell me what it's like to be a farmer's wife you know, what, what it's, what's it like? Because I, she was, you know, they all worked hard. My, my wife's family. I mean, my family does too. Um, and they're all my family now, but um, she never responded to that email. And I, re- I reminded her of that she goes, really, I never responded. And I said, no, but that's okay. Because we have all this other stuff. And it wasn't, you know, it just, it wasn't like an answer. I mean, there's just so much, how do you explain your life in an email? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it was such a, um, it wasn't, it was a dumb question. Um, but, you know, for an outsider for a while, that's what I, I felt like an outsider for a long time. And it wasn't, you know, in, but when I came to the farm, um, you know, here's a city kid comes to the farm and, and my wife's family was very welcoming. They're also very funny, very witty. If you listen to them, uh, they're one-liners and just how they looked at things and, and everything was just amazing to me. And it was an earned belonging though. Um, they called me bucket calf and they would let me tag along with them. And that's what I did. And one time, you know, in one of the essays in this book, my brother-in-law is like, look, you want to write about being a farmer, 
go back to the city and get a job working for some crap wages. And then, you know, maybe you'll understand a little bit. And so that's what I did in the summer between, you know, teaching classes, working on my graduate degree, I worked at a farm and that's in one of the essays. And, you know, the second week at that farm, I drove a John Deere 3020 into the side of this guy's garage. Somehow I managed to keep my job at that place. And um, I learned a lot. And then we all learned a lot. Some, some things unfolded at that farm that none of us knew were going on. Mm-hmm. Now, you did mention in one of the essays about your mother-in-law not answering that question that you emailed her. And I remember thinking when I read that, she must have been an open book otherwise when you were around her. Here's a tarp. I knew this would come in handy sometime. And the small elements of our lives that we um, that we don't announce to others, right? Like these cherries have been in the freezer for all this time. And she, and she was she was a bit of an open book for you. You know, you were part of the family. But I was thinking about how what a, not that the question was uncomfortable. That it wasn't a dumb question. But it was a question. Where was that self-consciousness coming from for her? Uh, And I'm not even sure it's that, but I I can imagine, for instance, my own mother or my own mother-in-law ignoring that email if it had come from me. I don't know what it is, some generational sort of just tight lip talking about themselves in these big ways. Nobody wants to, to show off. Yeah, you are so right about all that. She she never wanted to talk about herself. She would always ask how we were doing, and yeah, I she was a good up. listener. Mm-hmm. I picked up on on some of that mystery, just that idea of oh, you know, and I, I and that crossed my mind. And I think there are emailed questions that my own mother hasn't not answered. Otherwise, you know, she's quick on the draw and will shoot out an email right back to me. But not if it has something to do with something that, I don't know, that might make it sound like she's, I don't want to say bragging, but just telling the truth about herself. Yeah, they were really hardworking. They survived a lot of things. So me, let me read this real quick. Yeah. I think it ties into what you're talking about exactly. Yeah. It's called Year Six and a Half. And this is in the essay, The Mother-in-Law Archives. My mother-in-law sends me detailed reports about plantar fasciitis, the weather, a neighbor's tumor, and family feuds. Although I only live about a mile from her and we see each other frequently, she still sends me group emails. I had a cortisone shot in my heel last Friday for plantar fasciitis. The heel pain is gone. Just hope it doesn't come back. I went to the JCPenney watch repair department today. They didn't have links to match my watch, but the clerk will order some and send them to me. I can fix it. I'm not paying someone to do it. It was a perfect day today, but ice and snow is coming tomorrow. Once I emailed her and asked her what it was like to be married to a farmer all these years. I expected one of her long emails, something that I could put in my book about the Midwest, so I'd get a better understanding of things, a perspective from a woman who was born during the Great Depression, a generation that struggled and sacrificed to make ends meet. 
she never responded. Yeah. I think she was probably busy too. And I thought, and it is such a loaded question too. You know, how do you, where do you start? Um, and I know at that time I can remember where I was when I sent her that question. And, and I know she was working, um, you know, her work on the farm and then she had a job in town. So, mm-hmm. so um, yeah, it was, um, it was, a, it's a neat thing. I love sharing the stories of our family. I like what I did in bone chalk. I mean, I, I really like making people laugh and she was such a fun person to be around. You know, she was really funny and witty. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many people in my family on both sides of my family are, but you have to be listening and paying attention. And I, I, I love that humor. I've learned a lot from, um, you know, I've had the pleasure, I've, I've been fortunate enough to exchange a few letters with David Sedaris and, and I teach his work to my college students and they love his work mm-hmm. and they connect to it right away. And these are, these are students that never read um, much books besides some of the classics and then they come into college and they're um, reading David Sedaris and they're and they're really making connections with them and Sedaris will tell you he's like look you know I always used to try to be funny he would say I always went for the joke I wanted to be funny and he said but you know you have to mix that humor with some weight you got to have some serious stories in there otherwise it's just slapstick you know it's not going to work and and he was so right with that and so I always ask myself when I'm writing essays now and working on these, ne- these next books, you know, w- what's in it for the reader and why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, I have to tell you, that's so funny. It's such a coincidence that you mentioned Sedaris. When I was reading about you as Willie the Wildcat, <laughs> I was thinking about, I was thinking about Sedaris. And, and I think it's for that reason. It's like, so first of all, not to digress, but you don't write about your wife's family as caricatures in the heart. You know, it's, it, it's, they're not like sort of like these quirky characters. And I really appreciate that, that that's, that's what is coming through is a lot of heart, a lot of hard work, a lot of wisdom, a lot of realness and a lot of authenticity and, and respect for, these, I'll call them characters in your stories, right? Um, but then also to have sort of that measured approach to what's funny. I mean, th- there are things that are actually kind of funny. Are you sure it wasn't 1998 on the those frozen cherries? And you dig in, right? And And you can't, as a reader, you can't help but smile at that. But reading about uh, your your um, your stint as uh, Willie the Wildcat and your misadventures as a, a mascot, uh, yeah, I did think about Sedaris for a minute, and some of that ends up being pretty serious too. I mean, first of all, that's not something everybody gets to do. It's a very specific kind of a story, kind of a rare thing, um, and yet, you know, the more serious things, you know. The, um, that happened to you, or maybe that you you end up reflecting on. They're a little bit more universal for the rest of us. Yeah, I did that for all the wrong reasons. I became the college mascot because I thought I might um, I might get a date out of the deal, and and that and I did. But uh, it had nothing to do with the school spirit. But it was an and it was an interesting job. You know, you could hide in this huge costume. 
and really observe people. And that was really, really interesting. Although most of the time, you know, we were playing jokes and jumping around and, and um, doing things we weren't supposed to. And it, it was, um, it was interesting. It was really hot in that costume for a year. Um, <laughs> it stunk really bad, but wow. It, um, it, it was an interesting experiment in uh, sociology for sure. I, and I loved writing about it. I, you know, I wrote that essay a long time ago. I started it and, and then just kind of put it aside and, and then really thought about, you know, what's the human connection here and what are we all trying to do? You know, here I was, I was just, a, you know, I was good at, I was a mediocre rhythm guitar player in a band. I couldn't sing. Um, I knew I wanted to do something with my life. I wanted to make my mark and, and the position came up and I'm like, well, maybe, maybe this will help, you know? Maybe this will, I'll, I'll be something for a little while. And that something was uh, Willie the Wildcat. <laughs> but that's the best writing advice. Exactly what you said. What is the human connection? What is the connection that other people can make? Otherwise, it's a story that just runs into a wall of, you know, of solipsism. Like, like well, this happened to me and nobody else can possibly relate but that's not true at all. I mean, there was this whole thing with your parents, um, not their permission for you to do it, of course, um, but sort of explaining to them and, uh, you know, your mother on the phone. And it's, it's like we've all had those moments, maybe in other situations, not like, Mom, I'm going to be the school mascot. but Mom, I'm going to do something that you might not totally understand and appreciate right now, right? And the response uh, is the same. So yeah, that's the best writing advice, I think, with nonfiction is find the, the, the connection for your reader. And, uh, and, and you do, you really do that with that essay. Well, thanks. So you write about the uh, 1984 serial killer known as the Nebraska Boy Snatcher that really captured the imagination of your world. And then there's this other story in your book about Christina O'Day. And those two stories, the very dramatic stories, m sort of make this, this plate or this braid with this other strand about your working in prisons. So I wonder if you could just talk about if you have found the, the way that those strands have intersected in this book in very interesting ways, and if you can talk about that. Well, the essay is called 12 Years in Prisons and What Criminals Teach Me, and I've been working in the federal prison for now 14 years, and I teach writing. My main goal is to help men come to terms with the emotional instabilities that brought them to prison, and we publish a yearly journal called 4 p.m. Count. It could be the only journal in the country that's been consecutively published now for, um, I think it's, yeah, the last 12 years, even last year during the pandemic, we were able to bring out a journal. Um, so I'm doing that work. I spent some time working at St. Quentin, doing some training there, looking at their arts programs. Um, I worked for a couple of years in the state prisons um, here in South Dakota with men and women. And, um, you know, the, the coda of the story might help um, to read that, but I had these things just like all these other things going on in my life and I wasn't quite sure what to do with them. Um, 
you know, I went to school. A guy used to help me with my math homework in eighth grade. Um, ended up raping and murdering a friend of mine in high school. And that, what do you do with that? You know, I mean, as a writer, I thought about it for years. Could I write something about this? Because it affected everybody. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we were upset and, and it was scary and we didn't understand it. And um, so for years I thought about that. And then the crime came back up into the news. It was he and another guy committed the crime. Um, but one of the guy that I went to school with, um, he was a minor when he committed the crime. So he was retried. The judge gave him another 96 years in prison, said he'd never seen a crime that heinous come through his courts. Um, that's the idea of criminals. That's what I thought all criminals were these heinous people, th things we saw on TV. And then I was working in prisons and I was like, no, that's, it's not like that at all. And uh, these are guys I was working with were some guys that made some bad choices, made some misdirected decisions. Some of them had some really serious addiction issues. Um, you know, some things readers and listeners should know is one out of every three people in the United States of working age has some sort of criminal record. And the other thing they should know is every dollar spent on prison education equates to four or $5 taxpayer savings. So if that's all you're worried about is your tax dollar and where it's going, um, that's why education in prisons should be important to you because locking somebody up and not doing anything, you know, two thirds of them are come, gonna come back to prison. So those are all things to understand. And so, um, and then, you know, and then in the neighborhood when I grew up, you know, when I'm like 10, 11, John Jubert was killing kids my age, you know, kidnapping them, molesting them and murdered them. And uh, so that was going on. So I took all those stories and, and made this amalgamation of this essay. And um, that's, that's why I wanted to give voice to my friend who was murdered, try to tell her story um, and try to make some sense of it, even though I don't know if you can, there, there's no, you know, there's no, it's a heinous crime. I don't know why it happened. Um, and, but it happened and, and, and then working with criminals in prisons, I try to tell the stories that I see there and yeah, that's, that's what that essay is about. But when you ask that question about, you know, this happened and what do you do with that? And so you want to give voice to it and tell your story. But it's so interesting to me to see the ways in which it affected your work, obviously, as a writer. It affected your work um, very obviously as a parent. And you have these beautiful, it's so beautiful the way that your daughters emerge in some of the vignettes in this particular section, Never Talk to Strangers. Um, and also your work as a teacher. So when you can tell us these statistics about the number of people who, and you have this line, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to paraphrase it very roughly, but it's this line sort of, sort of like 
we're all this close to going to prison. <laughs> you know, it's not that far removed from reality for most people or to know someone who's in prison. And so this is, this really is something that affects us all in, in myriad ways that I think some people don't consider your work as a teacher. And you, you give this sort of heart-stopping example of one of your students who shared this very emotional piece about it. Um, so it's, it does seem all of a piece, right? It, it, what do you do with it? It's everywhere in, in your life, it seems. Look, everybody's broken the law, whether they don't want to admit it or not. And I remember when I, the first month I was teaching at the federal prison, the supervisor of education, she said to me, look, Jim, you remember this and you're going to do fine when you're in here. She said, look, any of us could have wound up in a place like this after a few misdirected decisions. And she was right. And, and I knew that and she knew that. And my job when I go in there is not, I'm not the judge and jury. I'm, I'm a, I'm a school teacher. I go in there and I'm going to teach those guys as much as I can and help them with their writing. And hopefully they write some stories and um, those stories can help with the healing process. And that's really what was behind that essay. It's a big essay in the book, you know, it's 30 some pages mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, everybody's like, can you write that? Can you do more? Can that be the next book? And that is something I'm working on. Um, not just at the federal prison camp, but the other prisons I was working at and, and just that bigger picture. And I, there is no answer, you know, for a long time, I was trying to find an answer to crime because of all this, these things that happened to me, you know, why did this happen? Um, what can I do to maybe stop crime? You're never going to stop crime, but there are some solutions, you know, some real common sense solutions. Jim, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Jim Reese is the author of Bone Chalk. It's published by Stephen F. Austin State University Press. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Eva Benavides.